transformation is happening all around us. The change of seasons brings new life to the earth. Just yesterday, we were at Mona Vale trying to stop the grandsons from picking the daffodils. That was quite hard. The entire city is slowly being transformed. We notice the activity on various building sites around town. Our work is taking place on our own admin building. Transformation is happening all around. I was out running in the park just yesterday, and I ran past our Bishop Peter, who was out walking with a friend. Along with the bishop, I'm interested in physical transformation also, after a certain amount of lateral spreading taking place over the winter. We all like the idea of transformation, don't we? Although we're not always willing to pay the price. Here's another story of transformation. A few years ago, a certain young man walked into his local church hall, uh, expecting a normal midweek Bible study. As he entered, uh, he saw a group of people sitting around in a circle as usual, so he took a seat, noticing absent-mindedly that there seemed to be quite a few new people this week. In fact, as he looked more closely, he realised that he didn't recognise anyone. It dawned on him that he'd got the wrong day and he'd stumbled into the wrong meeting. A middle-aged woman was speaking about the kind of week she'd had and that mostly she'd managed to avoid it, whatever it was. Uh, as each person took their turn to speak, my friend realised he'd stumbled into an AA meeting. Before long, he mumbled an embarrassed apology and left, but not before the meeting had made quite an impression on him. There seemed to be a measure of honesty, admission of failure, celebration of success, and mutual encouragement in the common struggle that he'd really, really found in the weekly Bible study meetings, which by comparison had often been rather dry academic discussions. The people who'd gathered for the AA meeting came because they knew they needed help and wanted to overcome their personal challenges and to experience, well, transformation. So today I want to address this topic because I think both the gospel and epistle readings for today are about this idea of being transformed. But let's begin by laying some theological foundations. Bear with me. One of the early debates in the first few Christian centuries had to do with the nature of Christ. Was Jesus a created being, albeit at the pinnacle of the created order? Or was Jesus fully divine and only appeared to be human? Or was he partly divine, like some of the figures in Greek mythology? Or even like some of the emperors who were supposed to have become divine? Because if Jesus was fully divine, how could he also be fully human? These issues were hotly debated and there were champions on both sides. But the issue was partially solved at the Council of Nicaea in 325 when a new word was invented, homoousios, which is translated of one being. So Nicaea declared that Jesus Christ was divine and shared fully in God's nature, God's very being. He was of one being with the Father, which we recite in the Nicene Creed to this day. But in subsequent uh, decades, the opposite question became an issue. How could Jesus have been fully human? And this was partially resolved at another great council, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, when it was declared that Jesus was at the same time perfectly divine and perfectly human. 
And this has tremendous implications for us because it means that the more like God we become, the more human we also become. Sometimes I hear the idea that, you know, a really holy person is somehow disconnected from real life. That theirs is an artificial world without all the frustrations and challenges of ordinary life. And so we think that holiness is to become somehow less attached to the world and to become less real as a person. That a holy person is somehow less than fully human. But Christian theology actually says the opposite. The more like God we become, the more real, the more whole, and the more fully human we will also become. I'll say it a different way. The route to human flourishing is to become more like God, to overcome our human weaknesses and faults, to learn the way of Christ, to be transformed into the image of Christ. You see, it's not that Jesus is fully human in spite of his being divine, as if we would normally expect God-likeness to get in the way of being fully human, because it sounds so stuffy and prim, you know. No, it's precisely because Jesus is fully divine in this good and life-giving and vibrant sense because he is perfectly human. Here's yet another way of thinking about it. We agree that Jesus is perfectly divine and perfectly human without confusing or collapsing or separating these two natures. And so we who are obviously fully human participate through our baptism in the divine nature. Now we have a life's journey before us to become more divine, to live into that amazing baptismal promise. And as a result, we will become more human. These two natures sound distinct, but our true identity is to have both natures fully restored in us. As Christ now is, so we shall be. And so we come now to some practical implications to church life. What do you expect of your involvement in St. Barnabas? This is a rhetorical question. Just think about it in your own mind. Why do you come to church Sunday by Sunday? How does church life and worship relate to other parts of your life? Because many think of the church as um, you know, a special kind of club for those interested in religion. Others think of the church as a social group where you can meet other people of like mind. Still others see the church as a way volunteers can be rallied to s respond to the needs of the community. So what are your expectations of being part of St Barnabas? Because one of the fundamental reasons we gather as a church family, and all those other things I mentioned are good in their own way, but one of the main reasons we gather is to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It means that we are learning together how to become less selfish and more generous, more humble, more joyful, hopeful, and compassionate, and much, 
much more genuinely alive. We are learning how to become more human by becoming more like Jesus. And that is the burden of both um, the gospel and epistle readings for this morning. It was my roundabout way of eventually getting there. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus lays out a very practical process to maintain the unity of the church and promote reconciliation when there are relationship breakdowns so that we as a church can also grow to become like Jesus. And these conflicts will inevitably happen when people are serious about doing life together and becoming more human and more divine. If there is conflict, Scripture urges us to raise the issue with the person who has caused you hurt uh, directly and personally and privately. Clearly, this has to do with a significant problem and not something minor. It's not talking about um, the sort of little hurts and things that we sometimes suffer. Uh, it must be a pro proportional result. Minor matters ought to be forgiven and forgotten, and we ought to just move on. This is something that's much more significant than that. But the point here is that we don't use email, for example, um, because what is imagined here is something that is direct and personal and private in the first instance. Uh, so we mustn't use email or to carp on to another person about this third party that's caused us um, hurt. We take responsibility and address the issue with the other person directly and transparently. But if this doesn't have the desired effect, then we go with an, uh, another person. And that's for two reasons that I can see. One is a third party can reinforce my concern, act as a witness, that was the word used in the scripture, or indeed tell me if I've got it wrong and I need to be corrected myself, because that can sometimes happen too. I might be offended, but it's not actually this other person's problem, it's actually my problem. So if the matter is still not resolved, then it needs to be taken to the wider fellowship of Christians. This would only be necessary in extreme circumstances. If the wrongdoer still re refuses to listen, they are to be treated like a Gentile or a tax collector. And uh, that's one of the tricky little verses uh, I think you'll find in the Gospels. But how the, the, the most obvious question is to ask, well, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, he reached out to them and continued to engage with them and sought to win them. So this final step has to do with never giving up, but continuing to hope and to work towards reconciliation. And note in verse 20, this is important, Jesus promises to be present where two or three are gathered in his name. So this whole process of reconciliation is played out among members of Christ's body, the church, where Jesus himself is present by his spirit, the spirit of unity, the spirit of love, to work mysteriously towards the unity of the whole church. Look also at Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. The passage begins, Owe no one anything except to love one another. And it ends with, instead, 
Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So the command to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is the same as saying become more Christ-like. And the command to love one another is how this is achieved. We are transformed as we grow in love. We are transformed as we become like Christ who embodied love in all its facets and it was a strong love, not a permissive, sappy kind of love. It was a strong love and at times somewhat stern, but always with the good of that person in mind. So, I close with a quote from UK Bishop Graham Tomlin, who said, Transformation involves a new framework for understanding the world and ourselves as the rightful property of God. It involves the establishment of new habits, new patterns of life, new approaches to people and to circumstances. And we've touched on a few of those things this morning. It means living as if all that Christian theology says is true, that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, that he has risen from the dead, and therefore death is ultimately a broken, defeated enemy no longer to be feared. It means living as if Christ has died for my sins, and therefore even though I continue to commit them, ultimately they are dealt with, and I need not live covered in shame. It means treating each person I meet as someone created in the likeness of God, precious and with dignity, with the potential of sharing God's nature again. It means living as if this really is a world graced with God's goodness, a world to be celebrated, protected and preserved as God's possession and gift. It means living as if I am loved unconditionally, warmly, constantly, and totally. End of quote. You know, as a church, we could have a vision to have excellent and well-maintained buildings. Some of us think that'd be a really cool idea. <laughs> or we could have a vision to have plenty of income so we don't have to worry about fundraising. That's also a pretty good idea. Or we could have a vision to have excellent Worship and music and programs and various things. That'd be pretty cool too. But you know, those things are ultimately secondary. I trust that you share my commitment with our parish vision to be a church where we are all growing in our love for one another, where we are being transformed into Christ's image and where we are becoming more fully human. That is what it means to follow Christ. That is our calling and our joy. Amen.